Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, friends, back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hi there. I'm Simon, your host here. What happens is, uh, well, actually today, brand new writer. I mean, definitely not brand new. If you guys know it, I do a couple of other, I do a couple of YouTube channels, one called Geographics, one called Biographics, and the guy who wrote today's script, Arnaldo, he, uh, he writes for those other channels, and he was like, Simon, I'd love to write something for Casual Criminalist. I really enjoy it. And I'm like, okay, mate. Go for it, because I'm in a desperate need to... <laughs> I somehow thought it was a good idea to try and release two episodes of The Casual Criminalist every week when we first started this show. And they all end up being like an hour long, so it becomes quite a mission to do that. Because with my other channels, it's like, yeah, I can do three videos a week, but they're all about 15 minutes. But releasing two hours of uh, Casual Criminalist a week has become quite a challenge, so I'm like, sure, Arnaldo, I could really use another script. And then he decided to make it 23 pages long, so we're in for a bit of a ride today. I think it'll be fun. Uh, I very much enjoy Arnaldo's writing over on my other uh, YouTube channel. So I think we'll all enjoy this together. Uh, what happens here if you're new is Arnaldo writes this for me. I've never read it for before, which might be a bit of a mistake because uh, while I, you know, trust Arnaldo's writing to be excellent, I've no idea how he's going to work on a casual criminalist. So we're all in this together. <laughs> your, uh, my laziness is your enjoyment, hopefully. Or, uh,. Maybe it just won't work out. I think it will. I think it will. Let's get into it. Also, just up front, thank you, Jen. I'm so happy to be here tonight with all of you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. The uh, the editor for this show who does the, uh, well, if you're watching this on YouTube, you get some images. If you're listening to it as a podcast, you get some audio stuff. I mean, like sounds and music and all of that jazz. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Arnaldo. Thank you, dear viewer or listener for watching, especially if you've left a review on Apple Podcasts. Especially big thanks to you few people. I mean few people, there's like thousands, but thank you. Okay, let's go. Enough fluff. Exterior. Night. Clouds of condensed breath float in the darkness, backlit by the headlights of a parked van. The wet asphalt is of a hazy shade of winter, to quote the latest single by The Bangles. Wait, aren't the Bengals like a super old band, or am I thinking of the Bugles? Don't they sing that? I don't know, enough, we're on line two, let's just carry on. Blaring from a Fiat Ritmo, idling nearby. The van's back doors are flung open as a team of four men load it with a precious cargo. Bulging bags of cash, the proceeds from a nearby supermarket. Oh, sorry, I didn't even read the title, did I? This is the White Uno Gang, Robbers, Terrorists, Serial Killers, question mark. Uh, I have to say... The last couple of episodes that I've recorded for this show have been horribly brutal. <laughs> like, there was one where it was like, oh my god, they're putting her face inside a Hello Kitty doll. Ah! And then there was another one where it's like, oh my, they were just horrible. So I heard like bags of cash and I'm like, oh, thank god. I mean, I know they get much less views because apparently you're a bunch of sickos. But uh, like the heist ones are a really nice break for me where it's like, oh my god, we're not talking about horrible serial killers. But it seems like we could be. So, uh, yes. Uh, you know, people were like, after that Hello Kitty one, people were like, Simon, take care of yourself. And I was thinking about that for days. I still think about that. And like, oh, it just makes me sad. <laughs> Why have I done this to myself? Let's carry on. The men in the Ritmo and the van are anxious to get their job done. It's almost 8.30pm, time to get home and enjoy a quiet evening 
after another grueling shift with their security company. These private guards are well-trained professionals, but tonight they have failed to spot a suspicious package placed under a bench a few meters away from them. The security officers are about to close the van doors when a loud blast tears through the fabric of the night. The bench is annihilated, and a wave of fire, incandescent air, wood splinters, and metal shrapnel surges towards the van. The guards knock to the ground, stunned, wounded. Five men emerge from the shadows, wielding sawn-off shotguns, assault rifles, and large-caliber handguns. They open fire against the dazed men of the security detail, the last defense, before they can grab the hoard of cash. But the guards are not defeated yet. They reach for their pump-action rifles and handguns, and a firefight ensues. This is fascinating. Uh, there's two things I want to comment. One, if you haven't seen the video of the security, security van driver who gets attacked like he's driving along... And then suddenly he's like, he notices something. And next thing you know, the bulletproof glass of his window is like splintering as like bullets are trying to punch through it. And he does some like, and they're trying to like run him off the road and stuff. And these two guys in the van are just completely like, lock and load, motherfucker. And the guy's driving and the guy sitting next to him has his gun out, like ready to go. And they're just like, I've never seen anything so professional in my life. I feel like it's the opposite of me. Like, I don't know. I'm not... (laughs) We do a show where it's mostly me rambling about <laughs> And uh, these guys, though, imagine the opposite of that. It's just like straight-faced, absolute like combative driving, doing everything to like save the day. It's like, Just search like security van attack on YouTube and you'll find it. I mean, after this show, of course, I need that sweet watch time. It's incredible. But also, the fact that these security guys are so dedicated to their job is like, you're not in the military. And you'll just get fired. You know, it's not like you're going to prison if you run away from the enemy or whatever. I'm just such a coward. I'll be like, wait, those guys actually have guns? Yeah, you can take all the money in the security van. <laughs> Here's my gun. Please don't hurt me. I remember I worked in a supermarket when I was a kid. And they were like, if anyone comes in and tries to rob you, just give them the money. Because we're not interested in a lawsuit. We're not interested in that. We just just give them the money. We want you to be safe. Don't even press the alarm. Just let them leave. And I was like, okay, why is there alarm then? <laughs> I'd be a terrible security guard. I'd be a terrible thing any 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 time that involves guns. I'd be like, no, <laughs> I don't like it. A gun battle outside a supermarket in the most placid of suburbia. Just when the TV news is almost over and the last commuters are returning home. One of the passers-by is no ordinary citizen. He's an off-duty police officer and he's immediately and he immediately recognizes the loud blast of semi-automatic weapons. You don't need to be an off-duty police officer to be a It's like, I know what that is. I know it's scary. Starts time to start heading in the other direction. <laughs> Drawing his Beretta service pistol, he rushes toward the supermarket, firing three shots towards the robbers. God damn. <laughs> Some diehard shit. Welcome to the party, Facing fire from two fronts, the assailants run back to their car. The roar of the engine and the screeching tires fade into the sound of incoming sirens. Two of the guards are lightly wounded. Another one will have to spend the day in hospital, but will make it through. The fourth one, aged only 26, dies on the spot with his jugular pierced by an unforgiving round. He had just become a father to a baby girl. And that, that is why I'd be like, take the money, take the money. I don't want to leave. Like, if I come home and it's like, hey, wife, listen, listen, there was a firefight at work and I, I was a massive coward and then they fired me. My wife, response will be at least you're alive and you'll find a job another job maybe not as a security guard rather than the other option of uh me being dead so uh yeah i know what i'd do but i mean obviously i guess we do need these these people who are heroes i'm such a coward i really am i'm gonna stop going on about how much of a coward i am
probably not the best <laughs> the best thing to like constantly admit to I am kind of playing it up there a little bit. In the meanwhile, the gang disappeared through the dimly lit back streets of the city, pressed into their stolen getaway car. They are all in one piece, but they are empty-handed. The action may appear as a failure. But what if they measured success not in stolen cash, but in terms of spilt blood, filled body bags, and blasts of adrenaline to their brains? At this stage, and for much of this account, the lethal outfit will remain an amorphous, bi-dimensional conglomerate of shadows, limbs, and cold hatred, sporadically illuminated by muzzle flashes. Ooh, I like that writing. But even in the darkest of nights, allow me to imagine one revealing detail, a human pupil dilating beyond its natural boundaries, overcome with delight by another fix of natural ephedrine. So this is what happened in Bologna, northern Italy, on the 19th of February, 1988. And this is what happened many more times before and after. This is the story of the White Uno Gang. Now, just before we get on with the rest of today's episode, a quick word from one of our wonderful sponsors, New Mood. New Mood, what are they gonna do for you? They're gonna take you on a journey. Where are they going to take me on a journey, Simon? They're going to take you on a journey to mental wellness. Look, uh, I don't know. I definitely get stressed out. I've talked about this before. I definitely have some, like, you know, a little bit of anxiety going on sometimes. You're like, oh, I don't like it so much. And then, I don't know, work sometimes gets a bit stressful, all that stuff. With new moods, they up, you could put a cap on that. I mean, putting a cap on it's probably not the right word. They probably don't know that in the talking points because that implies you're bottling all up and inside. No, 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 no. They help you deal with it. They help you deal with it. How do they do that? Well, basically, they give you the tools you need to tackle stress so you feel empowered to take on whatever life throws at you. And I said this before, I'll say it again. It's best to like, I don't know, if you're feeling super stressed, it can be quite hard to be like, let's deal with that stress. If you're feeling less stressed or like not so, you know, at that moment, no, it's the holidays. Maybe you're like, you know, winding down for the year. You got a little bit extra time. And you're like, you know, it's not as stressful as January, is it? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Although for me, because it's always, I don't know, the end of the years. Oh, let that period between when you quit work from like, I don't know, <laughs> I'm pretty lazy <laughs> around Christmas. I'll be like, yeah, yeah, 23. It's like, yeah, let's just take it a bit easy now. Until basically the new year. That kind of period, just kind of bumming around, not super stressed out. Guess that depends on how your relationship with your family is. But like, not that kind of intense work stress that can, I don't know, that really grinds at me. That could be a nice time to get started with something like Noon Mood. Uh, they, it just takes a few minutes a day, and uh, basically it gives you that mental toolkit so you can deal with that stress in the new year. Or uh, honestly, even if you are stressed out, just get into it anyway. I'll help you deal with all that stuff. Their guided approach teaches you the power of shifting your mindset in just a few minutes a day. Anyone can take a few minutes a day, even if you're mega busy. Uh, as I always say, Noon Mood is backed by science, based on psychological principles that teach you about your relationship with stress and anxiety. This isn't some astrological thing. It's not like, well, you're going to feel less stressed out when the moon is not in alignment with Saturn. None of that. It's obviously nonsense. It's based on science, and we like science here at The Casual Criminalist. It's helped the often criminals getting caught by science, aren't they? Who doesn't love that? Robust provides you with a variety of tools and techniques to try out and discover. It holds your hands. There's a daily curriculum and you can get one-on-one coaching that guides and encourages you on your journey. It's also accessible and convenient. 10 minutes a day. And you can do it whenever and wherever. Look, you can new mood, go at your own pace, guide you through. You got that coach. It's easy to get started. Just give it a crack, yeah? Why not just give it a shot? 10 minutes a day. Just go to, uh, where, where, where do people go to? Sign up for your trial at noom.com 
slash casual n-o-o-m dot com slash casual and they say here worry less and feel happier i feel like that's a mega life goal isn't it <laughs> just worry less be happier and do it with name name.com slash casual and now back to today's show a state of relative peace Listeners or viewers outside of Italy may not be familiar with this story, so let me give you some basics. Oh, yeah, Arnaldo, if you couldn't guess from his name, is Italian. So uh, this is uh, from his... And it's also interesting, like, George, who's, who's written a couple of pieces uh, in Hong Kong, he's from Hong Kong, which is crazy. I knew a guy who was... He was born in Hong Kong, but he didn't live in Hong Kong. I think he lived in Hong Kong for a while. But, uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. Not that interesting. Let's just carry on with the story. But what I was saying is it's nice to, to do this because we get, like, I don't know, a more international flavor. And I like people leaving the comments of this show. They're like, it's nice you cover stuff that I haven't necessarily heard before. It's like oh, look, this team of international writers. <laughs> Active from June 1987 to November 1994, the White Uno Gang committed 103 crimes, leaving 24 dead and 102 wounded in their wake. These crimes included standard robberies of supermarkets, banks, and post offices, as well as seemingly random attacks on ethnic minorities or police forces when there wasn't anything to gain. For their actions, the bandits always used stolen cars, preferably Fiats and Alfa Romeos. Is Fiat really the best choice? <laughs> as an, I, I guess Fiat's probably improved its image a little bit, but when I was a kid, it would be like, it was a fix-it-again Tony. <laughs> like, they're Italian, you know, Anthony, Tony would be like and then f-i-a-t fixed again tony which i was always like uh, yeah fiat's probably not super reliable not what i would choose for a getaway car i'd be like any toyotas <laughs> famously reliable they could get blown up and they'd still work my first car was a toyota that thing just never died like i just didn't look after it at all i'd be like i'll take it to the service and they'd be like no, it really needs this new filter and i'd be like how much is the new filter about like 60 quid and i'd be like well i don't have that so uh, does it need it to pass the MOT? And they'll be like, no. And I'm like, well, don't do it then. <laughs> it broke down once. And it wasn't new. It was like, I don't know, when I had it, like eight, nine years old. And uh, yeah, never broke down. Great car. Enjoyed it. It was unfortunately named a Toyota Starlet, which uh, is an unfortunate name for a 17-year-old dude to be driving. But it was a great little car, and I enjoyed it. They drove a Fiat Uno of white color only in six, on 16 occasions, but the press picked up on that detail and bestowed the lasting moniker. Now, as Italy is mentioned in this show, Jen may be tempted to treat listeners with a cheerful mandolin tune to underscore the geographic location. Jen, take it away. I hope Jen will forgive me if I point out that in this case it would be inappropriate, as the tune, as that tune may be more suited to a story set in the southern half of the boot. Oh. Well, Jen, scratch that. I'm sorry. I hope you didn't look it up, find a tune, and then insert it, and then be like, oh, goddammit. I spent like 10 minutes choosing a nice mandolin tune, you bastards. But today's criminal epic takes place in and around the city of... Is it Bologna? Bologna? I feel like I absolutely should know that. Come on, pronunciation, man. Tell me what you got. Bologna. It's not Bologna, for sure. Bologna. Bologna. <laughs> okay. Uh, see, uh, Greto. Bologna. Bologna. Okay, great. I'm sorry for my Italian accent, Arnaldo. I mean, no offense. But today's crit and any other Italians listening, hello. I know you're out there. I can see, like, you see where people are listening from. So many countries. It's crazy. But today's criminal epic takes place in and around the city of Bologna, almost 400 kilometers or 250 miles north of Rome. This fair city was, and still is, renowned for its university, its medical architecture, its arts, culture, and cuisine. People from Bologna are generally a good-natured, cheerful, and altruistic bunch. <coughs> Arnaldo. 
And now they're you from Bologna. <laughs> it's like we're the best people in the world. We have the best everything, best people, kindest hearts. Sure, the fact that my grandma hailed from this city. <laughs> Uh, I should read these ahead sometimes, shouldn't I? And uh, may not make me the most impartial of judges, but it is generally accepted uh, accepted fact by other Italians that the Bolognese are a hard-working people with a hedonistic streak. They work hard and they play hard. Bologna is still known as the city of the three T's, which stand for towers, a symbol of art and industry. Tortellini, that's the food. And Oh, <laughs> really? Wait, you say the same thing in Italian, though? Does this work in Italian? Towers is an English word. Tits is an English word. Can I say tits? It doesn't feel very PC. <laughs> Literally the next line. Not very PC, I know, but it's how the slogan goes. But even the most glowing utopia can have its dark corners. And even the capital of the three T's has been scarred by waves of violence, mainly politically motivated. This culminated on the 2nd of August 1980 when Bologna's train station was targeted, I'm gonna stop, but with the Italian accent by a far-right terrorist group, the Armed Revolutionary Nuclei, or NAR. They planted 23 kilograms of explosions which detonated at exactly 10.25am, claiming 85 victims and more than 200 wounded. Good lord, that is a mega-terrorist attack. But since then, Bologna and the surrounding region, Emilia Romagna, uh, I sometimes I have to do it sometimes because otherwise I don't know how it's pronounced. And if like one of the greatest tips someone in the comments ever gave me was like with the with when you're trying to get a pronunciation right, just do a version of the accent. Like just try, and you're probably going to get it more right than you would otherwise. So uh, yeah, I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just trying to get it right. Uh, they returned after that. They returned to a relative state of relative peace. A higher level of carnage. The lull in violence lasted seven years until our nefarious protagonists entered the scene. And I call them protagonists even though they were still nobodies. Wouldn't they be antagonists as well? Like, they're baddies, right? From the 19th of June to the 5th of September 1987, a group of armed robbers assaulted 12 tollbooths on the A14 motorway, which linked Bologna and the Adriatic coast. And honestly, I don't want to say it, but I can't blame them. I drove from North to South Italy a few years ago. Uh, just on a little bit of a trip. So expensive, Italy. What's up? You're like, I, I mean, I don't want to be rude, but your highways kind of suck. Like they're not, especially like the further south you get. It's like, what is this? <laughs> Why is there so many holes in the road? And then you go to the toll booth and they're like, hey, yeah, 25 euros. And it's like, bro, I was on the road for like an hour. Why is it 25 euros? You, I just drove through the whole of Austria before this and I paid like eight euros for the whole week. Like what's going on? <laughs> And in Austria, the roads are, like, unbelievably good. It's like they all somehow managed to be brand new. And you're driving through tunnels in Austria. And it's like, these look like they're from the future. It's crazy. So, yeah, I don't blame them. They want that 25 euros back. You can drive over the Alpine Pass, which is this awesome road that goes over, like, the Alps. Um, I believe it starts in Austria. And it's amazing. And you're driving through it, and it goes up so high, and it's beautiful. And then it's like, how much is that? 30 euros? And you're like, wow, that feels like a great deal. And then you go to Italy, and then like, you got to drive drive on the shit road for 20 minutes. 15 euros, please. Ah, ah. It's very upsetting. 
Younger UK listeners may not be familiar with the concept of a toll booth, but in many European countries, you were, and still are, required to pay a toll when entering a national highway. Now it's all connect contactless and automated payments, but in the 1980s, my dad still had to lift the right cheek from the driver's seat, extract his wallet with much grunting, and hand over some thousand liras to the board booth attendant. Yeah, I think those booth attendants, though, they've mostly been replaced by machines. Like, you just tap your card against it. When I was a kid... There was a, there aren't many tolls in the UK. There are some like toll bridges, and I think there's one toll motorway um, somewhere. I don't know. But one of the things I remember is you'd go over this bridge and you'd throw coins into this bucket. You'd just be like throw it out of the window into this bucket. It would but and then it would let you go. And I always thought that was cool. And it's the future of people being replaced by robots. Uh, they then inevitably complained that they didn't have change, so we all had to hastily count the loose coins in our pocket while the menacing lorry driver behind us was already blasting his horn. Yeah. Italians and their horns as well. That's a thing. So growing up in the UK is like using how often do you use the horn? I don't know, maybe once a year. <laughs> in like other countries, like ba 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 ba, hey, out of the way. It's like okay, I'm sorry. There was a story. I think India is also crazy for this. VW. Ex- I did this in a video once. They exported one of their cars to India, and the horn was like broken after like a month <laughs> because in Germany, no one was using the horn. You know, it's just like boop maybe once a, once a year and then in, in india they were using it so much the horn just broke like within a month and so they had to make a special variant of the car with a, a longer lasting horn for the indian market because i mean in italy they use their horns in india i don't know you guys like live with the horn it's like hello i'm here i'm here i'm here i'm here i'm yes we can see you you're a car you're not exactly small are you why it's understandable how these booths could make an enticing objective for some newbie thieves. They were rife with cash, undefended, and gave access to a fast escape route. The overall booty from the 12 heists was satisfying, but not head-spinning. A total of 38 million liras, damn, which corresponded to $28,000 back in 1987, that's an average of $2,400 per heist. That's quite a lot of money to be held in those little booths, isn't it? I can see why that's worthwhile. And that's 1987, so let's double it? Triple it? It's like $100,000. Woo! I should point out the violence was seldom used uh, during these actions, with only one person being wounded overall. Soon, though, the culprits would graduate to a high level of carnage. It's a Saturday, October the 3rd, 1987. We're in Rimini, a seaside town, some 120 kilometers or 75 miles southeast of Bologna. Mr. Grossi is driving to an appointment just outside of town. This is neither business nor pleasure. Mr. Grossi has received a clear message. Pay us 30 million liras. Or will blow up your car dealership. Oh my god. So that's like, oh, it's like $20,000, roughly equivalent in $1987. So let's triple it. It's $100,000. That's a lot of money. If someone did that to me, I'd, I don't know, I'd just go to the police and be like, yo, I don't think someone's actually going to blow up my car dealership, but just in case. And then if my car dealership got blown up, I'd be like, well, okay, that sounds like the insurance company's problem, doesn't it? <laughs> I'd just be like, I'm not giving you the money. What's to stop you from doing this again next week? But Mr. Grossi is not one to be intimidated. As soon as he received the message, he notified the police HQ in Rimini. Yeah, it sounds like a sensible man. Oh god, he's gonna get killed, isn't he? You're <laughs> like, Simon, you made the wrong choice. So I'm Mr. Grossi in this situation. He is driving towards the rendezvous. He's nervous, but reassured by the presence of an escort plainclothes police officer. One of them is even hiding in the trunk of his car. Whoa! But everything goes as wrong as possible, as fast as possible. Grossi and the escort car are approaching the established meeting point underneath a flyover. Just as they are slowing down, three or four gunmen lay out a barrage of fire from the road bridge above. 
Whoa, what are you doing? A policewoman, Ada Decambi, has her knee blown apart by buckshot. Her colleague Luigi Sensi collapses, his lung pierced by another bullet. Sergeant Mosca also collapses on the front seat. Blood splatters over his partner and friends, Luciano Baglioni. Wait. Oh, sorry, Lucha. Uh, Arnaldo gave me a pronunciation guide. He even highlighted it in yellow, <laughs> and I still missed it. So, Luciano is pronounced Lucha. Oh, no, Luciano! Luciano! I see. I see. There we go. Thank you, Arnaldo. My apologies. Um, why are they doing this? I guess they kill them all and then take the money. But it just sounds like you're just turning robbery into murder of a police officer, which I, I, I'm just going to guess comes with a, a little bit of a higher punishment than... Uh, uh, what's it? It's not. It's not robbery. It's um, blackmail. The attack is too sudden, too ruthless for the police to fight back. This is not an extortion deal gone wrong. This is an ambush conducted with military discipline, and the gunmen are already gone. Decampi and Sensi will survive, but Moscow will never recover from his wounds, and he'll die two years later. Oh man, you guys, this. I don't like this. Don't be murdering the police officers. Sergeant Maglioni suffered from PTSD after the attack and considered leaving the force, but he soldiered on instead, motivated to catch those who had mauled his squad. This is a movie in the making, isn't it? He's all grizzled, he's maybe got a scar on his face, he has flashbacks to it, and he's going to find them like that guy in Taken. I've got a very particular set of skills. God, that's such a good movie. Keep Maglioni in mind as we'll meet him again. Excellent. The attack against the police was a landmark action. From the following month, the gang became more specialized and more violent. They focused on specific targets, mainly the ubiquitous supermarkets of the co-op franchise. <laughs> okay, just there's co-ops here where I live, and I've just got an ongoing joke with my wife. <laughs> just go to the coop. <laughs> Hilarious fact, boy. What an interesting insight into the bad jokes that you share with your wife at home. Ah. Oh, I've also <laughs> another bad joke. I've just constantly been anytime she does something like bad. Like, not bad, but, like, leave something out. You know, just, like, stupid around the house stuff. On one of my other channels, there's an ongoing meme from Skeletor that it's, like, anytime something sexist happens, Sam Sam puts in, who's the editor on that channel, that Skeletor meme. Ah, just like a woman. <laughs> so I say that to my wife, and she's like, stop it! It's very amusing. To me, she finds it annoying. <laughs> this is when the press gave them their first moniker, The Gang of the Coops. I mean co-ops. Their first assault on a supermarket on the 21st of November 1987 yielded 78 million liras in cash, some $57,000. The second one took place on Saturday the 30th of January at 1988 6pm. Uh, the supermarket was bursting with customers and eyewitnesses, but the brazen robbers couldn't care less. They had been tailing two private guards charged with collecting the proceeds of the day. The guards park their Opel outside the supermarket and walk in to collect the money. As soon as they step out and drop a bag full of cash inside the car, two men, faces covered with scarves, move on for the attack. A hail of buckshot erupts around the sawn-off pump-action rifles, leaving the two guards and three passers-by bleeding on the ground. One of the guards will die on the way to hospital. The other four targets, including a nine-year-old girl, are severely wounded. The assailants grab a bag from the Opel, run back to their Fiat, and vanish once more. It will turn out that the sack they seized was completely empty. The robbery proceeded by a few days, the one I described at the beginning. So, two consecutive violent heists have turned out to be fruitless. Well, at least in terms of liras, that is. But is money really all that matters? Turning points. Police forces were stumbling in the dark. At this stage, it was clear that the gang had been responsible for targeting the co-ops, but they were yet to link those heists 
to the other crimes perpetrated. It would later emerge that the bandits knew their trade quite well. They always moved about with stolen cars, while Fiat, uh, white Fiat Unos are other inconspicuous models which would blend against the background of daily traffic. They always never used the same firearm twice in a row, and they took care to file the firing pins so as not to leave recognizable marks on the bullet casings. Honestly, these guys so far... I mean, no respect to them. They're horrible criminals. But uh, if you're new here, we have an ongoing list of uh, rules for criminals, which, uh, you know, like don't write down your crimes, don't tell people about your crimes, don't do crimes with other people. Actually, they're violating quite a few of these, like the don't do crimes with other people because they're part of a gang. It's a bad idea. People will turn on you. But other than that, they seem like to be quite competent criminals, which is rare for this show because normally, like running theme on this show, incompetent criminals incompetent police and it's very nice when we get competent criminals competent police or incompetent criminals competent police although that's usually a bit of a shorter episode because it's like a crime was committed and they were very quickly short caught even if witnesses were present the robbers covered their faces to avoid identification and they had an uncanny ability to disappear through back streets and shortcuts avoiding roadblocks and patrols before abandoning their stolen cars moreover the sudden and apparently irrational violence of their attacks had led many prosecutors to believe that a terrorist outfit was behind these crimes after all Italy was still trudging through its years of lead more than two decades of violence during which far-left and far-right terrorists sowed fear among the population murdering civilians politicians journalists and policemen alike or in many cases committing robberies to fund their struggle all authorities could do was intensify the presence of patrols on the streets spot checking suspicious cars in the hope of a breakthrough this all takes us to the evening of the 20th of april 1988 officers eriu and stasi are manning one of the roadblocks just nine kilometers six miles north of bologna they belong to the Carabinieri, one of the two main police forces in Italy. Similar to the French Gendarmerie, this is a military corps sharing many duties with the state police. Even though they are very much respected, Italians like to make fun of the Cabarini, always portrayed as terminally dumb in our jokes. <laughs> they are often contrasted to the standard state police which, with which they have a supposed rivalry. Having served with the Cabarini for one year as part of my national service, whoa! Okay, here we go. Italians, you have national service? Is that. I don't know how old uh, Arnaldo is, uh, but I, I guess they must have had it like back in the day. I have a feeling Arnaldo is probably the same age as me. So, 30s, early 30s, just guessing. Um, but, okay. I, I mean, I guess that it must be a thing, but I definitely don't think they have it anymore, right? I know Italian people. I don't remember them saying that they had to serve in the police or military or anything. I don't know how I feel about that. In general, a little bit of a tangent. I'm sorry. But in general, I kind of like the idea of, like, mandatory military service. Like, not going off to fight in a battle or anything, but just being like... I mean, I was in the cadets at school, and I felt like it was quite good. You learned some skills, like, you know, forest skills and gun skills and, I mean uniform skills and marching skills were like such a, a huge part of it skills that make me a nightmare for people like you but it was like i don't know it was quite good for discipline and you had to do these things in the cold and all of that and i don't know i felt felt it made me you know more of a disciplined person and i think like i don't know if you had to do like a year after school i don't think that'd be the worst thing in the world the swiss still do it i think that's quite good although i think back then i'd be like that dude <laughs> no i'm going to university to study a little and drink a lot yes 
Anyway, moving on from that aside, Arnaldo can testify that the rivalry is actually mutual admiration, and that even though I wasn't particularly brilliant in my simple duties, my colleagues were overall smart and competent. But let me go back to Iria and Stasi. They are 24 and 22 respectively. It's been too long since the last time I've been in my 20s. Oh, okay. <laughs> Dude, sometimes it's like, I don't read these ahead, I promise you. I mean, obviously not, because I stumble over it way too much for me. I actually read this ahead. It's been too long since the last time I was in my 20s, but it's difficult to forget the feelings and impressions left from that wonderful age. What seems to linger are the sounds, smells, and tastes of the best moments. When you're out and about with your mates. Yeah, I, I don't know, I feel the same about my 20s. 20s were, they were like a fun time. Like, I'm in, pretty much in the middle of my 30s right now. And I kind of like prefer in my 30s to my 20s, I think. I don't know, I've like found my rhythm with work, found my rhythm with family, found my rhythm with friends. I don't know, it's nice. It's nice. Whereas 20s were a bit more wild. And it's like, oh my God, what am I up to with my life? <laughs> and now it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, settled in. It's nice. It's nice. The clink of the ice cubes in your tall glass, the first swig of an ice cold beer, the sweet scent of hair as she draws, finally draws close. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, another getting a little personal here, aren't we, mate? Uh, that's what you should feel when you're 20. But what Ira and Stasi are about to experience are the sinister rattle of bullet casings hitting the asphalt, the taste of blood surging through the mouth, the acrid stench of cordite. While on duty, they flag a random car. It's a Fiat Uno. Even before they can ask the occupants to produce their IDs, the two men inside whip out their large caliber handguns and open fire. Whenever someone says whip out. <laughs> I don't know why I go to something else immediately. The two men in the car whip out their guns. Stasi raises his Beretta, but a round hits his hand, sending the gun flying to the floor. Three or four more shots reach their target, and the two cabaneri stump to the ground. This got super intense super quickly. After some seconds of silence, the two gangsters fire seven or eight more times at close distance. A cruel coup de grace to ensure the two young men will never rise again. This just got horribly dark. I was having such a good time. I mean... <laughs> I was having such a good time. Those police people were killed in their car and injured. I mean, I wasn't. But this just feels like, yeah, just pointless, horrible murder of two really young people. Um, moving on. Coolly, the two murderers head into their Fiat and speed northwards. The slaying of the two young officers was followed by several minor heists, thankfully bloodless. But the worst was just one co-op market away. Until now, the gang had only fired against people who could pose a threat, who stood between them and their goals, lawmen and private guards. Civilians had been collateral victims. But that was about to change on the 26th of June, 1989. I'll ask you now to picture Mr. Alessandrini. He's 53. He has retired early due to a heart condition. His son is due to marry in a few days. And this proud dad is cycling back home. At 10pm, a warm and pleasant evening begins in Bologna. But then the fragrant air is violated by those sounds the Bolognese have grown to hate. A series of shots followed by an explosion. The groan of wounded men on the ground. Mr. Alessandrini knows that there is a co-op just around the corner. And he reads the papers. Don't do it, my dude. You're a 53-year-old with a heart condition. Please don't cycle towards the co-op. Just call the police. That's what they're for. Call the Carabarini or whatever. He knows exactly what's going on. A group of armed men carrying a large bag turn the corner and run past him. It is them, the gang, of course, running to their getaway car. The 53-year-old cannot help himself. He may not be an action hero, but he has to reprimand these never-do-wells. He shouts, You scoundrels! What are you doing? I assume in Italian. <laughs> I wonder what scoundrel is in Italian. Hardly a threat, but that's all it takes. One of the gang stops in his tracks and heads towards him and slams Alessandrini down to the ground and shouts, You must die. 
A second bandit approaches and fires a burst from his submachine gun. That's all it takes to die. A few steps away from home. A few days from your son's wedding. Yeah, just don't do it. Don't get involved. I know it's like, I don't know. I always like wonder, you know, you see people doing something. Like the other day, I was just walking down the street and someone's just throwing trash out of their window. Like there's a parked car and they're just throwing trash out of their car window onto the street. I don't want to go up and be like, yo, what the f***? What the f*** are you doing? This is my street. What are you doing? But it's like you never know who's a psycho and who's not. Like someone could just be an absolute psycho. Like, honestly, the person who's just littering out of their car into the street is probably a psycho. Because they obviously, like, they have no... I just feel if you're if if you're the sort of person who doesn't pick up your dog shit, who litters, it's just like you obviously just don't care about other people and their enjoyment of society. Like you just you're just not a contributor. You're kind of like a piece of shit. And you're also and I also think that makes you more likely to be the sort of person who when someone knocks on the window, they're like, don't be a prick, don't do that. Then they they get out and just absolutely like beat the shit out of you. And I didn't know who's in the car. <laughs> it was dark, and I'm like what if it's a really big dude? I'm not a big dude. I don't know how to fight people. What if he has a gun? And I'm always like, you just don't want to get murdered in that way. Right? So I'm always just like, just don't get involved. Don't get involved. And you're just like, oh, what a piece of shit. Yeah. But then also, if there's someone, if it's if there's no threat, like there was someone parking on my street and there's these, <laughs> there's these cars that come by and uh, they take pictures of license plates. And um, if you're parked there illegally, they'll give you a ticket. And so people like to get past this. They'll like put, you know, like they'll stick a leaf or a piece of paper on their license plate, like so they don't get a ticket. I'm always going along taking that shit off because I'm like, yo, there's not enough parking for the people who live here. And you just like parking illegally. And I take <laughs> such a dick. This feels like such a douchey thing to do. I know it's like the right thing to do, but it makes me feel like such a douche now I'm telling this story. But I'm like, yep, you're going to get a parking ticket. God, I'm such an old man. I'm such an old man. I've become an old man. Oh my god. Christ. That was the tangent. And that's all it takes for the gang to stop giving a shit. To stop giving a shit about consequences, about necessary or unnecessary force to achieve their apparent goal. That sweet adrenaline nectar and that feeling of almightiness brought about by the gun which used to just be a byproduct of the heists, the shootouts, the getaways. But now they've taken over. They are the main driving force behind the brains and the hands of the gang. This is when darkness doubled, the turning point when their exercise of violence became increasingly futile and self-fulfilling. Tension mounts. The next big hit of the gang would prove how dead set they were on spreading terror. On the 15th of January 1990, a tall man wearing a balaclava storms inside a post office in Bologna. He shouts, Nobody move! This is a robbery! This is uh, the line from, um, ah, god damn, what's that movie? Is it Pulp Fiction? Is it Pulp Fiction? Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! And he fires twice in the air. The post office is crowded by some 70 senior citizens queuing to collect their pensions. As they drive to the floor, two more robbers walk calmly in and place a cylindrical makeshift bomb by the safe. Well, then all three gangsters ran outside the office, quickly followed by a powerful deflagration explosion. Amidst a cloud of dust and plaster flakes, three black-clad figures returned to complete the heist. But the safe 
has withstood the explosion. The gang scoops up a few million liras from the cashier desks and leaves the scene. They cover their getaway by detonating a second explosive device and laying suppressive fire against nearby shops. The whole action has lasted barely two minutes, but has left 45 wounded on the ground. One of them will lose both legs, and one year later will die from his injuries. The gang then laid low for several months during winter, spring, and summer. Their guns stood silent. But as the leaves started to wither and fall, death returned to the streets of Bologna. Between the 6th of October and the 27th of December 1995, more bodies dropped to the ground. Three of the victims were felled simply b- for bearing witness to small-time robberies against a grocery store, a petrol station. But in the case of the other two victims, the motive appeared just to be senseless violence. It's the morning of the 23rd of December, and a group of Romani travelers are camped out on the outskirts of Bologna. The night has been freezing cold, and the nomadic community is huddled by a bonfire. An old lady notices two men who've just climbed out of, a, of two white compact cars. As she will later state, I called them so they could warm themselves. The fire is everybody's. But the two just look at her. They laugh, and then the bullets fly. A man and a woman die instantly. Two more bystanders are left severely wounded. One of them, a six-year-old girl. What the f- I don't like it. Per a recurring script, the whole attack lasts barely seconds, and then the white cars have vanished. This time, they haven't even tried to steal anything, and the only explanation ventured by the press is a racial hatred toward the Romani community. Notably, it was after this string of attacks that the newspapers referred to the assailants as the White Uno Gang. This is when journalists, police forces, and ordinary citizens started piecing together the fact that the most that most violent events that have gripped Bologna in the surrounding region could be ascribed to a single malevolent entity, a force of nature driven by obscure motives, appearing out of nowhere to sow chaos. The mayor of Bologna, Mr. Imbeni, speculated they were terrorists, probably of the far-right inclination who wanted to punish his city historically governed by left-wing administrators. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... I have to say, like, in my mind, I always associate the far right more with violence than the far left. But obviously, historically, that's uh, not not necessarily true. Like, uh, far left has had plenty of plenty of violent action. But I guess it's colored by your own political opinions. Right. And so maybe the mayor of this town also coloring his opinions. It's like it's a right wing terror group gonna guess that that guy leans left the chief commissioner mr carnarosi followed another lead believing the white uno gangsters to be ordinary criminals but only a few days later they would prove they were anything but ordinary i mean it seems like they just get off on adrenaline right it's like they're they they i mean adrenaline's exciting it's like oh yes but most of us get it i don't know whatever you're into like motorbikes parachute jumping these are quite extreme examples but like all sorts of stuff sports gets you gets it pumping doesn't it but uh these people seem to be murder i guess everyone's got just different requirements for what they need to like feel something oh my god i saw that free have you guys seen that free solo movie i feel like everyone's seen that free solo movie about that guy alex hammonds or hammonds honnell honnell hammonds something like this who climbs who climbs uh yellowstone no it's not yellowstone he climbs that giant mountain el capitan in yellow st- somewhere where apple have their backgrounds on the computers and he climbs it without ropes and they they take him like at some point in the movie he goes for like a medical checkup and they give him a brain scan because he's just not afraid he's just he doesn't have any fear he's like no no, no i'm just gonna climb it and it's, it's just always chill because he he doesn't really seem to fear death and then they take it for a medical checkup and they're like nah mate there's definitely something wrong with your brain you don't seem to be able to produce like adrenaline or fear or whatever it is and that's all the movie says about that 
and it raises like in my mind i'm like wait 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 so there's something medically wrong with this guy which means that he has no fear so he does these incredibly dangerous things um because he's just not really scared of death and i'm like shouldn't we shouldn't shouldn't more be made of this shouldn't isn't there some sort of ethical argument about whether this guy should be protected from himself because he's sick in a way because he doesn't have fear and i don't know i just felt that movie didn't really explore they were like oh that's interesting he doesn't have fear so he's happy to risk his life all the time just and and do insanely dangerous things and i mean obviously it's his life and he can do whatever he wants with it but maybe we should like be like isn't this a pill you can take so he has fear I know we are a much worse climber, but uh, shouldn't he have that? <laughs> I don't know. For self-preservation? But uh, God, that was a fantastic movie. And I mean, crazy mad respect. Like, whatever without the fear. And also just being an incredibly skilled climber. Not important. Let's get back to our story. War on the State Night has fallen over Bologna and a thick fog shrouds the Pilastro district. This is an area riddled with violence, drug dealers, petty criminals. It's the 4th of January 1991, and three young men are cruising in their dark blue Fiat. Otello, Andrea, and Mauro are all 21 in the prime of their life. But tonight, they're on duty. They are the Cabinieri on patrol. Shortly before 10pm, they drive past a white car. It's a Fiat Uno. Otello is at the wheel. After taking over the Uno, he slows down. Is he suspicious? Is he about to radio in the license plate? Nobody will ever know. A short man leans out of the Uno, brandishing an assault rifle. He lets out a burst, and Otello is mortally wounded. But the young officer continues driving in his last waking minutes, speeding off to take his mates out of danger. In a reversal of roles, the robbers now chase the cops through the streets of Palastro until Otello lets go of his life, and the patrol car crashes against a row of rubbish bins. The white Uno screeches to a halt. The three occupants climb out, take position behind the car, and release volley after volley. Andrea Mauro are wounded but put up a fight. They also take positions and fire back with their Beretta M12 submachine guns. The shortest of the three assailants is lightly wounded in the stomach and slumps to the ground, and that's probably the last thing Andrea Mauro will ever see. All three cabinieri are down, and the guns fall silent for a few seconds. Then two of the gangsters calmly walk down to them. They place the muzzle of their 357 handguns against the back of the officer's head and fire the last shots. The Piastri massacre was an outrage that could not be left unpunished. Police forces and security service reacted swiftly, but with little coordination. The terrorist hypothesis emerged once again as a far-right faction. The armed phalanx claimed responsibility for the deed, but this group was widely considered unreliable, little more than phone pranksters all talk and no action. You see, serious terrorists normally asserted ownership for their actions by phoning authorities or the press long before the media had made them public, while the phalanx issued their claims only after the crimes had been announced on the news or TV. The Secret Service has chipped in on the investigation, placing their bets on the drug trade. They issued a memo to the Bologna police advising them that the Palastro culprits were six Romani of Slavic origin implicated in a gang war to control the illicit drug market in the area. But this trail proved to be a dead end. From their side, the Cabinieri followed two leads. On one hand, they launched a manhunt for a mysterious military-trained killer, also part of a drug-dealing ring. Apparently, this assassin was on a personal vendetta against the Cabinieri, guilty of cracking down on the Palastro drug dealers. On the other hand, an elite undercover unit raided the hideout of a far-right extremist group suspected of being linked to the massacre. Both inquiries 
were inconclusive. Only the state police seemed to be on the right track. Their special operations direct division had tracked down an eyewitness, Simona Bersani, who identified one of the shooters as Peter San- Santagata, a career criminal. After a lengthy investigation, on the 20th of June 1992, the police arrested Peter, his brother William, and a third suspect, Marco Meda. Meda was a member of the Camorra, the equivalent of the Mafia of the Naples area, and he wasn't just any rank-and-farm member. He had been the right-hand man to Rafael Cotullo, one of the most powerful bosses of the organization. These initial arrests were followed by a massive operation, leading to the roundup of 191 suspects in the Palastro district. By pulling in that thread, authorities believe they had identified a fifth mafia, a powerful organization to rival the traditional four crime syndicates from the Italian south, the Cosa Nostra, the Camorra, the Nadrangheta, and the United Sacred Crown. It looked like the state had finally won. Wait, are they thinking this is like a big criminal organization, but it's just a bunch of people who get off on shooting people? I mean, I guess that it depends how big the gang is, right? But those other, you know even though I don't know how to properly pronounce them. Those other Italian gangs, it's like I've heard of all of those, <laughs> so I know they're a big deal. But this other one? I mean, maybe I'll have heard of it in the end, but I don't think so. Like the white Fiat Uno gang? Even on Aldo said at the beginning, it's just kind of an Italian thing. So I don't think this is some, like, big gang crime family, is it? The Execution But had they... I'm sorry to throw in a spoiler at this stage, but while the Sangtagatas and the Meadow were no saints, it much later emerged that they had nothing to do with neither the Palastro mass- Massacre nor with White Uno in general. Oh, so sorry, the San- San- Sangtagastas and Meadow, is that what it was called? I'm sorry, I lost track. There was a lot of Italian names. Okay, <laughs> but I don't know them. Uh, while the investigations and trials against them were still ongoing, the real bandits went for a brief period of hibernation, soon to be followed by more seasons in the abyss. On the 20th of April, they assaulted a petrol station in Borgo Panagale, a district of Bologna known as the home of Ducati motorcycles. Another heist, another victim, the 50-year-old station attendant. On the 2nd of May, the white Uno killer stole two Berettas from a gun shop, murdering the two shop assistants. I feel like robbing a gun shop is some, like, dumbass <laughs> it's like yo 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 i don't know i love the game you know grand theft auto like the crime game it's just literally about crimes it's like just crimes um but robbing the ammunition is not smart because you try and rob the ammunition the guy just gets a shock and he starts shooting you and maybe you kill him but you're not getting any money don't rob the gun store on the 19th of June, they shot dead the owner of another gas station. On the 18th of August, they shifted their operations on the Adriatic coast for an unprovoked and apparently racially motivated attack. Dark muzzles protruded from a white Uno, unleashing fire against three Senghalese factory workers. Two of them, Nidai Malik and Babo Chekder, died on the spot. After a hiatus of some months, it was time for the bandits to enter yet another phase. Leaving behind supermarkets and petrol stations, they graduated to robbing banks. From 1992 to 1994, they assaulted 14 banks spanning the entire area between Bologna and the Adriatic coast. During this phase, they became they became increasingly efficient and somehow less bloodthirsty, leaving only three, body, only, only three bodies on the ground. One of these killings was particularly cruel. On the 24th of February 1993, while getting away from a heist, the gang ditched their stolen Fiat to board another vehicle. It was then that they noticed they were not alone. A 21-year-old man, Massimiliano Valenzi, had witnessed their movements and was taking note of the license plate. A brave action from an upstanding citizen, but essentially futile. 
Also, the second vehicle was stolen and destined to be abandoned or burned. And yet, the gang decided to complicate their own escape plans. They screeched to a halt, drove back, and kidnapped Massimiliano at gunpoint. The young man was taken to an isolated location and forced to his knees. His indiscretion was punished with execution. A gunshot to the back of the head. Lone Wolves this method of dispatching a witness was and still is considered a trademark of Cosa Nostra. But during this period, prosecutors and journalists started to consider a rumor which would have placed the White Uno in a completely different environment. The rumor may have been sparked by a hunch from Senator Gualtieri, president of the Parliamentary Commission on Terrorist Attacks. When discussing the White Uno gang, he commented, These guys wear the stars. What does that mean? The phrase references the small star-shaped pins which Italian military personnel wear on the collar of their uniforms. A journalist from Bologna, Carlo Lucarelli, described, discussed this with some policemen friends. And they all agreed that the idea had some legs. The gangsters may have belonged to the military or be part of the police force themselves. I mean, it's kind of... I mean, I, I don't know. I don't really know like how well-equipped gangs and terrorists were back in like 1980s 1990s italy but it does seem like they've got a lot of guns and they seem to really be know what they're doing with the guns and they seem to kind of know how not to get caught which i mean generally now i'm like yeah just watch some csi <laughs> just listen to some true crime podcasts it's like you just don't do what all the idiots on those shows do but these guys you know they didn't have their true crime podcasts back in the day they didn't even have csi and it does seem they know what they're doing it does seem that they know how not to get caught in a way, doesn't it? The shooters displayed a marksmanship discipline and speed compatible with military squad tactics at the time. At that time, part of police training. The gang appeared to have extensive knowledge of escape routes and knew how to avoid the roads most patrolled by police. Finally, some of their heists appeared to be timed with the shifts of uniformed officers. In other words, some cops may be clocking off, quickly changing into civilian clothes, and then switching to the other side of the law. That's super intense. <laughs> I also feel as a cop, like, you got to be more careful. Because if you're a cop and you get caught for crimes, you have to go to prison. And I've seen enough movies to know that they don't like cops in prison and that you can have a bad time. Lucarelli happened to also be a popular author of mystery novels, drawing inspiration from this hunch. Wait, who was Lucarelli? I'm so stupid. Oh, he's the journalist. He's the journalist who was talking to his policeman friends. Ah, <laughs> oh, sometimes, sometimes. I haven't slept much this week. <laughs> This has been a week of, of little sleep. My kid was sick. Uh, people will be able to work out when I record these videos. Like this one's more recorded ahead than my other ones because I was talking about this on another channel. I think those videos already went out, whereas this will probably be in a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, it's been a bit of a rough week, kid-wise, sleep-wise. So uh, excuse my small brain. It's, uh, it's part, of the, part of the lack of sleep thing. Also, just in general, just not being very clever. <laughs> All right. Drawing inspiration from this hunch and the unlikely involvement of domestic terror, he wrote his next successful novel, Armed Phalanx, published in 1993. In this piece of fiction, a shady criminology professor leads a cabal of neo-Nazis and police officers into committing violent acts against immigrants. In the novel, the case is solved by a lone wolf, the clumsy yet brave Sergeant Colliandro. In real life, investigators were hindered by the presence of too many wolves. Let me explain. 
In Italy, inquiries are conducted in the field by the state police and or the cabinieri, but the high-level coordination rests with the public prosecutor's office. Each city or province has its own office with authority to proactively kick off investigations. When a string of crimes is committed across several provinces, as in this case, each prosecutor's office is free to lead their own investigation with little or no coordination with their colleagues in the next town. This approach changed in January of 1994 when a young, when new young prosecutor mr daniel party took the in, took charge of the case yeah this is amazing i get the feeling it's less nowadays but there's definitely cases we've discussed on casual criminalists previously like it seems especially in the states where it's like oh yeah 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 no he's definitely a wanted murderer in alabama he'd killed like loads of people but then he just went to like nebraska is nebraska nebraska's a state right i don't know some like state far away <laughs> and uh yeah he just he just wasn't they didn't catch him because they he wasn't wanted for crimes there and i'm like <laughs> guys can we get it together please i think it's obviously much less nowadays with computers and all of that stuff but uh it was it was pretty absurd how yeah just leave the state no worries carry on or even not if you're getting even for just not getting caught if you're committing crimes in different states they like weren't tying the dna and the fingerprints together and all that stuff which just strikes me as a little bit crazy because isn't that something computers are literally designed to do? He obtained permission from his superiors to create a special pool or squad of policemen, carabinieri, and other state attorneys to gather and review evidence across all territories involved. Pachi had a valuable asset at his disposal, former sergeant, now inspector, Luciano Baglioni. Remember him? The one who had lost a friend in the extortion operation? Uh... Oh my god, yeah. Wait, this was the guy who was shot under the bridge. Ah! Yeah, he was the guy. Sorry, I also forget the earlier parts because I took about 10 minutes off to make a coffee. And uh, then I lose the flow of things. But this was long and I honestly just really had to get coffee. Um, He was the guy who... That car was driven under the bridge. The guy with the gas station who was going to get blown up. And then one of them got their knee blown up. One of them died. And then this was the guy who was going to go all taken. It's like, I've got a very special set of skills. And he was going to take them all out. Baglioni and his deputy, Sergeant Costanza, followed some key investigative principles based on razor-like simplicity. First, identify which category of criminals could the gang belong to. Were they terrorists? They discarded this line of inquiry. Terrorists always laid claims to their actions. The only faction to do so had been the laughable armed phalanx. Could they be part of a larger criminal organization? Baglioni and Costanza grilled their extensive network of informants in the criminal underworld, and the reply they got was consistent. The local large cartels had nothing to do with White Uno. In fact, they were pissed off that these newbies had been attracting so much media and police attention lately, making life harder for everybody. Okay then, how about the rotten cop theory? The two detectives preferred to focus on similar on a similar trail, disgruntled former cop who may have been kicked out of the force. This does sound like a pretty good line of inquiry. Like, that's definitely what I'd be pursuing. Um, yeah, I mean, that it just seems that's, that, that seems like a good one, right? Before the increase could lead anywhere, the pool led by Mr. Patchy was disbanded for lack of resources, but Baglioni and Costanza received authorization by Patchy to continue investigating on their own. The lone wolves had jumped off the page and into real life. Two officers with very limited resources could not follow every faint trail, every unlikely line of inquiry. Again, they went for focus and simplicity. 
They had worked out the gang's M.O. when assaulting banks. The robbers always went for small affiliates with no security personnel. The officers were located on or near thoroughfares and featured a security exit with a panic handle. These characteristics allowed the gang to enter the bank and then leave the area as quickly as possible. These choices implied that the gang stalked potential targets for days before staging a heist. So, cops Baglioni and Costanza decided to play robbers. They made a list of banks with these recurring characteristics within the Rimini province over which they had jurisdiction. Then they spent all of their work time and most of their spare time lurking outside these banks, just as the gang would. Sooner or later, they'd spot some suspicious activity. This is like one of those uh, moments. And we've had a few of them on Casual Criminalist episodes in the past where it's like, okay, so the cops realize that they're not going to catch them by just looking at their past crimes, so they have to predict their future crimes. And normally it's even darker because they're like, yeah, the reality is we just have to keep a close eye out and wait for the serial killer to kill again. And then when he does, we'll catch him this time. But we just have to accept that there will be a sacrifice. And I'm like, that is so dark. (laughs) But at least with, I mean, these people are horrible murderers, but at least there's the chance that they don't kill anybody and they just do a robbery. They always carried with them in their pockets and in their memories the only known image of a gang member. There was a frame captured by CCTV during one of the later bank jobs. The image was only partially clear, but it showed a recognizable face. A tall man with glasses and a protruding jawbone. Inspector de Paglioni dubbed him Mr. Big Jaw. Creative work there. Days and weeks of crushing boredom finally paid off. On the 3rd of November 1994, Baglioni and Costanza were parked outside a bank in Santa Gustina dist- in the Santa in the Santa Gustini district of Rimini when they spotted a Fiat Tipo, which what made it suspicious was its license plate. It was partially covered in dirt, enough to make it illegible. The Tipo lingered around the bank for a while before driving off. Baglioni and Costanza followed it at a safe distance, though through winding country roads, until they reached the village of Torriana, not far from the microstate of San Marino. I feel like I made a video about San Marino. I don't remember anything about... In fact, if we did, Arnaldo almost certainly wrote it, because Arnaldo does a lot of writing for that Geographics channel. And uh, honestly, if, a, if someone was going to write about San Marino, it would be the Italian dude, wouldn't it? I'm sorry I don't remember that, Arnaldo. I record a lot of stuff. I'm sure it was good. I mean, the writing was good. I don't like to say my own videos are good. But uh, I'm sure the writing... Look, let's just move on, okay? There they saw as the driver parked the depot and entered a small flat, but they could still not see the face of the mystery man. Badge in hand, they visited the local registry office and asked the clerk to produce any documents related to the flat's occupier. It was one Mr. Fabio Savi, owner of the body shop. Unfortunately, the registry did not have a copy of the man's ID, but hold on a second, he had recently requested a fishing permit, and here was a copy of his photo ID. Baglioni later admitted having goosebumps as he stared down at the ordinary, bespeckled space of Mr. Savi. It was him. They had found Mr. Bigjaw. Downfall Years of stunted, dead-end inquiries unraveled at surprising speed. Baglioni and Costanza immediately requested authorization from Mr. Parchi to place surveillance on Savi by trailing him and wiretapping his phone. And they discovered that he had an accomplice, and they were planning a large heist against a bank in Ravenna, 63 kilometers or 40 miles north of Torriana. It turned out that this accomplice was more than just a colleague in crime. It was Mr. Fabio Savi's older brother, Roberto. The two were too smart not to realize that the police were following them, and so they decided to call off the robbery. Fabio got cold feet. He'd returned to Torriana, packed up his bags, and left with his mistress, Romanian national Eva Makula. 
young, blonde, and attractive. Eva may have been a stereotypical gangster's ball straight out of a novel of Mr. Lucarelli. Fabio had met her while holidaying in Hungary and was so smitten with her that he abandoned his wife. Their relationship had been largely dysfunctional, marked by repeated physical abuse. Even on this occasion, Eva could do nothing but abide by the wishes of her partner and followed him in his escape attempt. The two tried to shake the police off their trail, first traveling to Milan, then to Mestra, near Venice, and finally heading toward the border with Austria. It was all futile, though. The police arrested them on the 24th of November, just a few kilometers short of the border. In the meantime, Roberto had been seized while at work. Some colleagues had lured him out of his office as an excuse and then pounced on him. Some pretty brave office workers, you may say, but I should point out that Roberto was no ordinary pencil pusher. He was a seasoned police officer, having clocked 18 years with a Bologna HQ. Yeah. Um, well, there we go. The police thing was right, wasn't it? And yeah, well, that's that's pretty intense. 18 years. It's got to be rough, though, if you're a policeman and it was happening like right under your nose this whole time. You'd be like, ah, oh, no, it was Roberto. Oh, no, this isn't going to look good. People are definitely going to mock us here and be like, the, the next police station along will be like, oh, no, you guys, you didn't know. You didn't know. Weird, no. Ah. That was the big reveal, or if you like, the big confirmation of the hunt shared by Senator Galtieri and Luca Relli, the crime writer. Roberto Savi was known to his colleagues as a stern, taciturn introvert, but overall an effective cop, a tad too violent perhaps. Once while on patrol, he had physically abused a subject, completely shaving his hair. <laughs> okay, that's a weird one. <laughs> As a result of that incident, he had been relegated to a desk job. He oversaw the operation center, coordinating the activities of patrol cars and answering calls to 113, the Italy's equivalent of 999 or 911. And that explained a lot. That's how the gang always knew which roads were the less patrolled. That's how they could avoid police roadblocks. Costanza and Baglioni's squad raided Roberto Savi's garage and they found a military-grade arsenal, submachine guns, assault rifles, handguns, even explosives. Surprisingly, all weapons appeared to have been regularly purchased regularly purchased and declared to the authorities. Yeah, because he's a cop, and then when they're doing them, they're like filing down the bullets and stuff so they can't be traced. I have to say, it does seem like pretty intense that you can purchase explosives. Like, I feel like, okay, guns, it was the past... Uh, and we all know that those can kind of be, you know, they're less traceable if you take care of them. And then explosives, though. I feel like that's always what gets what gets people caught. Because it's like, yeah, 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 well, you were buying explosives, weren't you? <laughs> and then we found out about that. But, I don't know, somehow got away with it. Prosecutors set to work interrogating the Sabi boys and Eva Makula. The put-upon mistress was a treasure trove of information which helped identify the remaining members of the gang. Another Sabi brother, the youngest, Alberto, his profession was a policeman at the Rimini police station. In other words, he had occasionally worked side-by-side side with Baglioni. Uh-oh. And then there was Pietro Gugliotta, policeman. Marino Occipinti, policeman. Luca Valicelli, also policemen. All three Savi boys were sentenced to life. Gugliotta was sentenced to 14 years in prison, being released in 2008. Occupinti received life, but he was released in 2018 for good behavior. Valicelli, who never participated in a murder, was freed after three years and eight months. That seems like a very light sentence for some clear association with murder, doesn't it? Uh, there's, there's laws in the UK, at least, to, to kind of deal with gang violence, where it's like, ugh, I can't remember how, exactly how it goes. But it was basically, if you're, if I remember correctly, just guessing, and this does seem to be correct, if you go somewhere, let's say to rob a bank, 
and you foresee the possibility that someone during that bank robbery could be murdered or suffer grievous bodily harm while it's taking place and that does happen like one of your comrades murders someone or badly let's say they murder someone even if you and you didn't do anything you were just there to rob a bank if you saw the possibility that someone could get badly hurt and someone else kills someone you are also guilty of murder to prevent gang violence which is super intense because it's like i didn't even think that murder was possible you just had to think that gbh was possible at least that's how it was a while ago if i'm remembering correctly but i remember being fascinated by that the outcome of the investigation uh, investigations and subsequent trials left bologna and italy as a whole in shock uniformed officers sworn to serve and protect citizens had turned to heinous crime no one was as shocked as the father of the savi boys however mr giuliano savi was a stern and authoritarian figure who liked to collect arms and was a strong proponent of law and order a disciplinarian father he was however dead proud of his boys especially those who had joined the police actually also fabio had tried to enroll but he was discarded due to his poor eyesight overcome by guilt and shame on the 29th of march 1998 Mr. Savi sat in a white Uno not far from Rimini and swallowed the contents of seven boxes of lorazepam, a strong benzodiazepine used to treat anxiety and insom- insomnia. Uh, allow me to consider him the last victim of the white Uno gang. I know lorazepam well. <laughs> I was, uh, have I told this story before? When I was a student, I went to like one of those drug trials, you know, where you test money, test drugs for money. And they were testing some new sleeping pill, and it was like lorazepam combined with something else. It's really pleasant. <laughs> it's just like spent like two weeks testing these like sleeping drugs. And I was like, wow. I can see why people take these for anxiety. <laughs> oh my. The motives. But what could have turned those otherwise respectable guardians of the law and a body shop mechanic? into killing machines the three savvy boys gave a very plain answer money by early 1987 roberto was struggling to pay his mortgage fabio's body shop business was going under while alberto had a long distance relationship and could not afford the fuel to go and see his girlfriends i feel like the the mortgage guy's in trouble though like what are you gonna do i've got a mortgage i can't imagine going to the bank it's like yeah no no i've just been paying like online like with my earnings just the normal way and then one time you just roll up and you're like listen can you accept accept cash slightly bloodstained <laughs> they'll be like no but why don't you just sit down in reception for a little while while we get the manager and then they're like by manager we mean police <laughs> it was roberto who first joked that they supplement their income with heists a joke which gradually turns more and more serious throughout their criminal career roberto maintained the lead the brains of the operation president every action uh fabio was the second in command also always present he was the point man the first to go in the first to attack the first to shoot alberto and the other three were occasional members joining only for certain crimes the criminal cv could be roughly split into three stages the toll booths the co-ops and the banks it's easy to see a progression there as the gang acquired skills and confidence they selected more profitable targets the overall loot from their robberies was around 2.5 billion liras about 2 million usd in 1990 money Divide that by seven years of activity, six gang members, and you get an individual booty of roughly $50,000 per year. Let's double it so it's $100,000 per year to roughly take care of inflation. I don't know. It's a lot of money. But it's not enough money. I don't know. Is that is that enough money to be like a criminal? 
it feels like no especially like a horrible criminal it's like yeah if you're dealing pot and making 100k yeah who cares fine uh but if you're like doing heists and murders don't you want more money isn't the point of that that you get loads of money it's like like this was this is one of the rules it's like yo if you're gonna do crimes make sure the crimes make you loads of money if that's the motivation if it's a financially motivated crime make sure it makes you loads of money otherwise don't do it fifty thousand dollars is not enough which is a respectable salary but i wonder if that if i was in the same situation myself would i risk my life the life of my brother and the life of many innocent victims for that kind of money the answer is no because one i'm not a criminal and two uh well even if i was it's just not worth it if I needed a side hustle, would I go full white Uno? Or could I, I don't know, write articles for a certain bearded content creator? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I like it. Sure, both lifestyle choices would end up with inca- incarceration in a basement, but at least I would have a clean conscience. If you're new here, there's a bit of an ongoing joke, especially on one of my other channels. The, the writer of that channel is locked in the basement. It was made in the comments, and then someone just, he just leaned into it, and it was like... Oh my god, I'm just gonna get arrested someday. And they'll be like, Where's the basement, Whistler? There is no basement, it's just a joke. I'm sorry. If you're new here, you probably got no idea what I'm talking about. Don't worry, ignore it, let's move on. Thank you for being here. The same questions about motive were posed to Fabio Sabi in January 2001 by Mrs. Franca Leosini, a legend of Italian crime journalism. Leosini stages lengthy interviews with the worst that humanity has to offer, which she conducts with the demeanor of a headmistress trying to figure out the troublesome kid in her classroom. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> Does she have it as a podcast? In the interview, Salvi drones on matter-of-factly about his criminal career, displaying some remorse, zero passion, and even less charisma. Fabio stated once more that the reason for the white Uno crimes was money and nothing else. When asked about the killings, he replied that the murders were needed to remove obstacles and reach the gang's end, grabbing the cash. And what about the attacks against the Romani and Senghalese workers? Salvi initially stated that those actions were intended to mislead authorities. At the time, some criminals at Palastro had been randomly attacking nomadic communities, and the plan of and the plan of the Salvis was to link their heists to that other gang. Okay, it's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? But in other parts of the interview, he slipped, admitting that they shot the Senghalese workers simply because they didn't like them, they were drunk and annoying. When pressed further, he conceded that the gang was not just after money, but after increasingly heightened emotions. They were in it for the thrill, for the adrenaline of storming in, shooting down obstacles, and getting the hell out. Yeah, I mean, guys, they if you've admit I assume like they found all the crimes that they did, at least the ones that we talked about in this episode. Some of them were clearly not very financially motivated. It was just you like killing people because it's a thrill. You fing psycho. <laughs> what the f to quote Spanish painter Francisco Goya, the sleep of reason produces monsters. Hence the question mark in this episode title. Were the white Uno gangsters and Roberto and Fabio ordinary violent robbers, or did they become serial killers along the way? Um, I don't know. Serial killers feels like it's more like one guy or a gang or like two, and they go out and they're purposefully like, we're just going to murder people just because why not whereas this feels more like gang activity it just doesn't it i don't know I do, how do you define serial killer it's someone who's killed like more than three people right so i don't know but this doesn't feel like that does it it just feels like gangs like horrible horrible gangs getting up to horrible shit. 
There is another interpretation, of course, the lingering suspicion that the gang were part of a larger terrorist outfit charged with striking at citizens and representatives of the institutions. Ah, I don't know, it's a bit of a stretch again, isn't it? It's just like these were guys who liked doing crimes because it was exciting. Simple. But open and shut. Done. At the time of their arrest, some journalists speculated that the Sarvis were part of Gladio. This was a stay bar this was a secret stay behind organization created in the nineteen fifties by the Italian Secret Services under the auspices of NATO. Gladio and other equivalent networks across Europe were essentially sleeper cells of armed citizens charged with launching guerrilla attacks against a potential Soviet invasion. As the Red Army never invaded Western Europe, authors such as Daniel Ganser speculated that Gladio was used to launch false flag attacks and drive public opinion to support a right-wing authoritarian government. I should point out that the Sarvis were never part of Gladio and that this Italian stay-behind has been cleared of such allegations. More recently, magistrate Giovanni Spinoza has theorized that the armed phalanx group were not a bunch of mythomaniacs, but a legit far-right faction who manipulated the white Uno gang to stage their dirty work. Again, Nothing has been proven to this effect. I don't, I don't know. I just don't think so. It just seems like we're veering into like, ah, oh, this is just an unnecessary conspiracy theory. Look, everyone knows it. There are dickheads in the world. They like committing crimes and murdering people because they're dickheads. They're not part of some conspiracy. They're just dickheads. Simple. All these theories stem from a state of mind known to Italians as diotrologia, which could roughly be translated as behindology okay or the drive to understand what's behind apparent truth what conspiracies and cabals are lurking at the back of the official versions propagated by the press and the government was there a larger conspiracy behind the sabi brothers and their acolytes when fabio is asked what was behind or at the back of the white you know he coldly replied the license plates the lights and the bumper yeah it's not there it's not there these guys aren't even spinning that story and at that point yo they're in prison forever and if they were if this was like something where it was like okay well we've been instructed by this stay behind organization gladio to do these things or by some terrorist group someone in the police is gonna be like yo 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 want to roll over on them and then take a new identity and just go live in the italian countryside and they'd all be like yes please i'll do that and uh, they didn't because it's not real Dismembered Appendices 1. The speculations linking the White Uno gang to Gladio were fueled by a similar string of violent robberies which had shocked Belgium in the 1980s. From 1983 to 1985, a criminal outfit known as the Brabant Killers assaulted several supermarkets, killing 28 people and stealing a laughable loot. They were never caught. In 1991, the Italian Prime Minister first revealed to the world the existence of Gladio and other European stay-behind organizations. Following the declaration, the Belgian Senate launched an inquiry to understand the, if the Brabant Killers could have been part of the local network, the SDRAB. The inquiry found no evidence that SDRA, sorry, SDRA8, SDRA8. Uh, the inquiry found no evidence that SDRA8 took part in criminal activities, and the Brabant case remains unsolved. Two. In 2021, Eva Makula, Fabio Sarvi's lover, self-published a book giving a different version of the White Uno gang. According to Eva, it was all down to her. <laughs> okay. Someone's putting herself at the center of the story. As Fabio kept her virtually incarcerated, one day she managed to contact a Hungarian journalist friend spinning a story that the Savi brothers, brothers ran a human trafficking wing ring. The journalist noted the hung, notified the Hungarian embassy in Rome, who alerted the police. Thus, Baglioni and Costanza sprung, sprung into action looking for human traffickers and came across White Uno instead. This version of events remains unconfirmed 
by the magistrature. Number 3. Local newspapers in the Bologna area have recently started writing again about the Waitunos. They pointed out several faults in the early police inquiries, claiming that the gang could have been stopped after the attacks at the Romani camp. Hindsight's 2020, guys. <laughs> Come on. They didn't do that bad of a job. Well, I mean, other than the police officer who was part of the gang working in the police station for, what was it, 18 years? It was okay. I don't know. I feel like they got they got them. They got them for that killing and subsequent crimes. Roberto and Fabio broke their rule of changing weapons. They always used the same assault rifle, a Beretta AR-70, which Roberto had privately purchased and regularly declared with the authorities. At that time, only 30 people in the region owned an AR-70, and Roberto was on that list. His colleagues knew about it and even asked to bring it to the station so they could look at it. Not out of suspicion, mind you, just out of curiosity. The crafty Roberto promptly bought a second, clean AR-70 and handed it over. This weapon was kept in the station for a few hours and was never analyzed. During the trial, Roberto even pointed out that if forensics had done a more in-depth ballistic analysis, they could have been stopped much earlier. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty though. And also, if you're looking for some criminals who are murdering people, you're probably going to, you know, it's just as likely it could be an unregistered weapon, even possibly more likely. I mean, I'm not saying that means we shouldn't look at the, the list, but look, whatever. I, I'm always very hesitant to blame people looking back and like i try to do it in casual criminals be like oh, okay try to look at it as if you were that person at the time because that's the information they had anyway not important this has been an episode of the casual criminalist first one from arnaldo i like this um i like arnaldo's writing he's written for me on my other channels for a long time so it's really nice to see him branch out to do this as well thank you arnaldo and uh yeah thank you for watching if you're watching this on youtube as a video please make sure you like subscribe all of that good youtubey stuff if you're watching if you're listening to this as a podcast a review would be fantastic thank you so much and i'll uh, i'll see you in the next episode 